Well, good evening and uh, welcome back to, uh, again, a, a wonderful way to end Sunday by being together to worship the Lord. Uh, one announcement, uh, really a reminder, this Saturday night at 5.30 is our 25th anniversary dinner, so I uh, encourage you, remind you to, to be here for that. Promises to be a wonderful evening, and uh, most of all, we will celebrate the Lord's faithfulness to this church and uh, the blessings he's given to us over 25 years. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We'll have a moment of silent prayer. Prepare ourselves for worship this evening, and so let's bow before the Lord together. Father, we thank you for the blessing of this day, and we thank you for bringing us back here tonight. We pray that uh, all that we do would honor and glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 84 is our call to worship this evening. It's the psalm that we'll sing together in just a moment. Uh, The psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. We are a very blessed people, blessed that God has called us, blessed that God has forgiven us of all of our sins and given us eternal life. And every Sunday morning and evening in the greeting, he reminds us that that he is a God of grace and mercy and peace. And so receive now the greeting of our God and King Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are going to confess together the words of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, If those are not familiar to you, there's a little book in front of you called a Forms and Prayers book. It's on page 148. Uh, But we say these words usually every Sunday night as a very short summary of what we believe concerning God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't do this hopefully out of just rote or memory, but we do this as an expression of what we believe as the church of Jesus Christ. So let us say these words together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's respond by singing number 84C, O Lord of hosts, how lovely. Uh, We just confessed the, the greatness and the power of God as well as his mercy and grace that comes to us in Jesus. And now it is our joy to sing praise to him. So we'll sing 84C, 1, 2, and 3. Let's remain standing as we sing.
Please take the Forms and Prayers book and turn to page 224. Page 224 in the Forms and Prayers book, we come tonight to, um, well, one of the most important Lord's Days, I think, in the entire Heidelberg Catechism, which is Lord's Day 23, uh, that deals with the subject of justification. Uh, Martin Luther once said that justification is the article on which the church stands or falls. In other words, you lose this, you lose the gospel. You, you lose this, you lose the heart of the Christian faith. So what is contained here in Lord's Day 23, which is simply an echo of Scripture, is a, a very, very important topic for us to understand tonight. There are three questions and answers I will read the questions and then together we'll confess the answers. Question 59, but how does it help you now that you believe all this? That I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Thirty years ago, it was 1993, and um, I answered an ad in the local newspaper for a furniture store that was looking for a director of marketing. I had no qualifications whatsoever for that job. I saw it in the newspaper, I needed a job, and so I, I called the, um, the store, I set up a time to, to meet with the owner, and uh, I think my interview was the next day. The day after I interviewed, he, he called me and he offered me the job. I was pretty stunned that he would offer the job to me. And he, he said to me, um, I interviewed 11 people for this job. And you were the only one who didn't bring me a resume. And so I figured I'd hire you. <laughs> Children, do you know what a resume is? A resume is a, a document that lists all of your qualifications for a job. Now, I would not recommend applying for a job without a resume. But I guess he, he liked the fact that, that I basically came in and didn't try to impress him. I, I basically came in and said, I got nothing for you. I didn't have anything, but I'm willing to learn. I, I bring that story up because when it, when it comes to being right with God, a lot of people think that on the day of judgment, God's going to be impressed 
with their spiritual resume. They think that uh, they're going to go in perhaps before God and they're going to lay out this list of qualifications that will get them into heaven. Raised in a Christian home, attended church, very involved in church, uh, giving, financial giving, uh, acts of service in the community. But the catechism reminds us that, that none of those things are of any value when it comes to being right before God. Nothing on our supposed spiritual resume will cause God to say, okay, come on in. Heaven is yours. Answer 61 says that only Christ is my righteousness before God. Not my resume, not my qualifications, not anything that I have done, only Christ. And that really is the heart of Lord's Day 23. It's the heart of what we looked at this morning, that Christ alone is our Savior. He alone is qualified to save you. And, Catechism adds, we receive his righteousness, we make it our own by faith alone. Children, it's not by your good works or your good efforts It's by trusting Jesus Christ alone. That's what the catechism is stressing here. And it always gets me, the end of question answer 60 says that God now views me as if I had never sinned, as if I had been as perfectly obedient or righteous as Christ was righteous and obedient for me. That's how God now views you, Christian. He views you as he views his son. Not because of our spiritual resume, but because of Christ's spiritual resume, which includes his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. Those things are the ground of our right standing before God. We're going to sing a a well-known hymn, number 459, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus' Blood and Righteousness. That is our confession that is our hope Uh, that is what this church stands for that our only hope is Jesus Christ we'll sing all four stanzas and let's stand as we sing
Hebrews chapter 4 says that we can come to God's throne of grace with confidence. Confidence is not in the fact that we know that God will always answer our prayers as we pray them. Sometimes he does not. The confidence, though, is that we know that God always hears our prayers. And that's a, a wonderful comfort to us. If we are believers, we can know that through Jesus, whether we are young or old, God always hears the prayers of his children. So let's bow before him together. Heavenly Father, we know that it is by the work of your Holy Spirit in us that we can sing and confess and find joy that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We thank you tonight for giving us spiritual life. We thank you for opening our eyes to the truth the truth of our sin, the truth of our hopeless condition, the truth of what we deserve by nature, and the truth of what Jesus has done in living the perfect life that we couldn't live and in paying the penalty on the cross for all of our sins. Lord, it is humbling to know that apart from your work in us, we would not know or embrace these truths. Left to ourselves, every one of us would continue to live in rebellion against you and we would not care about the state of our souls. We would continue on our own to be on the broad road that leads to destruction. And so tonight we begin our prayer by confessing that we have nothing in which to boast, nothing in which to take credit for, but we give you all the praise and all the glory for your work of salvation in and for us. We pray, Father, that this understanding of the gospel and gospel humility would characterize us and characterize the ministry of this church, that as you bring new people and visitors to our church, that they would find here a a, a group of Christians who, certainly not perfect, but who loves you and who loves the gospel and who loves to proclaim that that Jesus Christ is the only hope. Help us, Lord, to be humble. Help us to recognize how much we are dependent upon you and help us to, to love and serve and care for one another. We pray tonight for your church all throughout the world. We pray that you would sanctify your people in the truth of your word. We pray that you would continue your good work in each one of us, that we would continue to confess our sin, continue to look to Christ, and continue to rejoice in what you have done for us. We also pray that you would provide your church with faithful preachers of the pure gospel that your preachers would not mix the gospel with works or with performance, but would faithfully and carefully preach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We pray for those Christians who live under the threat of severe persecution. Lord, while we know certainly even in our own country that that we face hostility against the truth, we We also know that there are Christians in other places that have it far worse than we do. 
And so we pray that you would strengthen them by your means of grace so that they may continue to stand firm for Christ and remain faithful to him. We also pray this evening for those who persecute your people. We, we think of instances in church history where, where violent persecutors became followers of Jesus. And we pray that tonight that, that you would bring deep conviction upon them, that, that you would cause them to see their sin and their dire condition before you and that they would come savingly to Christ, asking him to wash away all of their sin. We thank you again for the rain that you have provided for us, but we also pray, Lord, for those who have suffered due to floods or, or other issues because of the rain. We, we pray that you would provide for them. As we take an offering tonight for Westminster Seminary, we pray for both Westminster and Mid-America. We pray that both schools would be faithful and training men to be careful and faithful preachers of the gospel and to be diligent and loving shepherds of your people. We ask that you would bless both schools with the financial resources needed to carry on their work, for wisdom for the respective school boards and for faithful professors to, to teach and to model what it means to be a gospel preacher. We pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word this evening. May we leave here tonight praising you for the incredible, undeserved favor that you have shown to us. We pray all of these things now in Jesus' name, amen. We now give to Westminster Seminary and that offering will now be taken.
Thank you, Marge. I'm going to invite you all to take your Bibles and turn to the first book of the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we will be reading the first 16 verses of Matthew 20. If you were here last week, um, you might remember that we looked at the, the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, he's this, this man who, who came to Jesus with a very important question. He came to Jesus and he said, uh, what, what good deed do I have to do to have eternal life? What do I have to do to, to go to heaven when I die? And you remember what Jesus did. Jesus sought to crush the man with the law. He, he sought to... Uh, make the man see his true condition before God. He wanted the man to see that there was nothing he could do, nothing he could perform that would get him to heaven when he died. And so the context of our passage tonight is eternal life. And, and now Jesus is going to tell a parable about eternal life, about being part of God's kingdom. And it's, um, it's very contrary to the way that we think. I said to you this morning that we are wired for law. We're, we're wired for this idea that there's no free lunch, that we have to earn our place. But that is not so in the kingdom of God. So Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Uh, many of you know who R.C. Sproul was. R.C. Sproul was uh, a Presbyterian theologian uh, whose books and videos and DVDs have had a, a significant impact on many Christians. I think we probably have a number of his materials in our own church library. There was a point in, in Sproul's life where he was teaching at a Christian college and he tells the story about uh, one of the classes that he taught in that college. It was a, a freshman introduction to the Old Testament course. And he said that, that that particular course had about 250 freshmen in it to, to learn about the Old Testament. 
Uh, most of you know what happens on the first day of class. The, the teacher will tell you what to expect for the semester. He will give you due dates and required reading and exams, and he'll go over all the stuff like that. Well, the first day of class, um, Sproul went over the syllabus with all the students. And he told the students, he said, um, you have three papers due this semester, September 30th, October 30th, and November 30th. Make sure that you get every one of those papers in on time. Well, September 30th came, first paper was due. 225 students turned their papers, 25 students didn't. 25 students who didn't turn them in went to Sproul and they said, Professor Sproul, we didn't get our papers done. We're freshmen, we're just adjusting to college life, we didn't use our time wisely. Please don't give us an F for this assignment. Please have mercy on us. Please give us a couple more days and, and we promise we'll get our papers in and this will never happen again. Sproul said, okay, I'll give you two more days, but don't ever let it happen again. October 30th came, paper number two was due, 200 students turned in their papers, 50 students didn't. Sproul went to the 50 and asked them, where are your papers? And the students said, oh, you know, we had midterm exams, uh, homecoming was this week, we just, we didn't budget our time properly, please, Professor Sproul, don't fail us, give us one more chance. And Sproul said, okay, you got one more chance, but this is the last time. Don't let it happen again. November 30th came. Third paper was due. 150 students turned in their papers. 100 students didn't. Sproul said, where are your papers? The students said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll get them done. We'll get them to you in the next couple days. And so Sproul started asking them individually, Johnson, where's your paper? And Johnson said, I don't have it yet, but I'll get it to you. Don't worry. At this point, Sproul took out his grade book, opened it up, said, Johnson, you don't have your paper? Okay, F. Failed him. Harrison, where's your paper? You don't have it? F. Sproul said at that point, with one voice, all 100 students who didn't turn their paper in all protested, and they all said the same thing, that's not fair. And Sproul asked them, what did you say? Did you say that's not fair? They said, yes, that's not fair. Oh, Sproul said, so it's justice you want. He said, well, it seems to me that, that I remember that most of you were late on the last paper, weren't you? And they said, yes, we were. Sproul said, okay, since you want justice, I'm going to change last month's grade. And I'm going to give you an F for that one too. Who else wants justice? Not one student said a word. The point is, it is often true that when we don't get what we want, we cry out, that's not fair. We see something like that tonight in this parable that Jesus tells. This is one of my favorite parables because it is a wonderful lesson about grace. We want to look at this parable in three parts. First of all, the master hires his workers. Then the master pays his workers. 
And then third, the workers complain to the master. And what I want you to see is that this is not a parable about justice. This is not a parable about fairness. We might read this parable and we might say the same thing that Sproul's students said, that's not fair. But this isn't a parable about fairness. This is a parable about God's sovereign grace. So the parable starts and we are told that early in the morning, the master goes out and he hires workers for his vineyard. The picture here is that this man has a very large vineyard. He can't do all the work himself and so he goes out to get men to do the work. In that day, um, field workers would typically work all day from sunrise to sunset. So we can, we can say from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., 12 hours, these men would work. He goes out, he finds these men early in the morning. We can picture it maybe 5.30 in the morning. He finds these men and they reach an agreement on the pay. He tells them that, that he will pay each of them a denarius for working one day in his field. One 12-hour shift in the field, you get a denarius. Now, it's difficult for us to, to translate a denarius into today's dollars, but it seems that it was considered fair pay for working one day in a vineyard. And so let's say that it was um, $15 an hour. 12 hours, that's $180. Let's, uh, for the sake of ease, let's round it up to 200. So he finds these men. He says, if you work in my vineyard for 12 hours, I will pay you $200. And they say, great, we'll do it. And so the men go into the vineyard, and, and after these men have worked in the vineyard for about three hours, the master decides, you know what, I need more workers. This isn't enough. So, so he goes out about nine in the morning. He goes back to the marketplace, which is where you'd find men who were looking for a job, and he hires more men. And he says to them in verse four, you go into the vineyard too, and, and whatever is right, I will give you. Now, if you have your Bible open, you will notice in verse four that, that he doesn't give them a specific dollar amount. He doesn't say, this is how much I will pay you. He just says to this group of workers he hires at 9 a.m., I'll pay you whatever's right. Well, apparently the master then realizes he needs even more men to go work in his vineyard. He goes back to the marketplace at noon. He hires more workers. He goes back to the marketplace at 3 in the afternoon. He hires more workers. And each time he hires these workers, he does the same thing. I'll pay you whatever is right. In other words, don't worry. At the end of the day, I'm going I'm to take care of you. I'm going to pay you a fair wage. Now, now remember, the, the typical work day is from 6 in the morning till 6 in the evening, 12 hours. At about 5 p.m., the, the master says to himself, I need to hire more workers. So he goes to the marketplace. He finds more men standing around. They've been standing there all day. They haven't been hired yet. And he hires these men at 5 p.m. to go work in his vineyard. And so you can get an idea here of what this man has done. He, he's hired some men to work for 12 hours. He's hired some men to work for nine hours, some men to work for six hours, some men to work for three hours, and some men to work for one hour. You've got this, this wide range of how long these men have worked. Well, now it's 6 p.m. and it's quitting time. Work is done for the day. And so the master tells the foreman, Get all the workers here, gather them all together, and I want you to give them their paychecks. First up are the guys who were hired at 5 p.m. Children, how long did these people work? 
One hour. Okay, they, they started work at 5 p.m., they stopped work at 6 p.m., they worked for one hour. They get their envelope, they open it up, they look at their paycheck, $200. They got $200 for working one hour. Now at this point, the guys who were hired at 6 a.m., you can picture them kind of standing off to the side and, and they're kind of getting an idea that maybe they're hearing from these one-hour workers what they got paid and these guys who worked all day are salivating. They're really excited. They're saying to themselves, you know what? If the master paid those guys $200 for working an hour, just imagine what he's going to pay us. We work 12 times longer than they did. We, we should get 12 times more money. We should get a check not for 200 We should get a check for $2,400. That's what they're expecting. Now, the text doesn't tell us this, but, but we can just imagine the, the foreman, he just keeps handing out the paychecks. He keeps going down the line. The guys who he hired at 3 p.m., they get a paycheck for $200. The guys he hired at noon, they get a paycheck for $200. The guys he hired at 9 a.m., they get a paycheck for $200. Well, at this point, the guys who worked from sunup to sundown, they're extremely perplexed. They don't get it. What's going on? This doesn't make sense. Everyone's getting paid the same amount. They were expecting a big fat paycheck. They were expecting a check for $2,400. And everybody else is getting the same amount that the one-hour workers got. And so the 12-hour workers, they're the last guys to get paid, which is interesting. Jesus let them see what everybody else got paid. They get their check. They open it up, $200. They get the same amount that the guys who worked one hour got. Now, let me ask you, how would you feel at that point if you were a 12-hour worker? Children, how would you feel if, if you worked all day for someone and you found somebody else, another friend of yours, who maybe did hardly any work at all. Maybe they worked for five minutes and you worked for 10 hours and the the person who hired you for the job, they give your friend who worked for five minutes a case of candy bars. And then it comes your turn to get paid and you get the same amount of candy bars. You would go, that's not fair. I, I worked like 12 times longer than my friend and he got paid the same amount I did. One group in these workers gets $200 an hour. All the way down to the guys who worked 12 hours, they get less than $17 an hour. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. And so the workers are now going to come and and they're going to complain to their master. These these men who just put in a 12-hour day out in the vineyard open up their envelope, they see a check for $200 and they can't believe it. Is this a joke? What, what, what in the world is this? We, we just worked 12 times longer than the last group he hired, and we get paid the same amount. And they go to the master, and notice what they say to him in verse 12. These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. We get their frustration, don't we? 
This is what makes the parables of Jesus so wonderful because we can relate to them, we can understand them. You can put yourself in the shoes of these 12-hour workers. You can imagine yourself working out in a field in the Central Valley of California, 110 degrees on a hot July or August day. It's been super hot. You've been working all day. You're tired, you're hot, you're dirty. And at the end of the day, what happens you get the same amount of money as guys who waltzed in at 5 p.m. and only worked an hour. You'd be furious. You'd be very angry. And that's the case in this parable. The 12-hour workers say, look, we, we just spent... 12 hours in that stinking field. We've been out there all day. It's horribly hot. We didn't slack off. We did what you hired us to do. We worked for 12 hours. Are you really going to pay us the same amount you paid those guys who worked for an hour? That's ridiculous. And it really is the cry of Sproul's students, right? That's not fair. That's not fair that you would do that. That's not fair what you would do to us. Now let me ask you a question. Did these workers have any right to grumble? Did they have any right to complain? Notice how the master answers them in verse 13. He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Did the, did the master back out of the deal he made with them? Did, did the master break his word? Did, did the master give them a different amount than they agreed to? No, he didn't. He hired them to work a 12-hour shift. He said at the end of that 12-hour shift, you're going to get $200. The workers agreed to that. Verse 2 says that very explicitly. That was their agreement. And at the end of the shift, at the end of the day, that's what the master paid the workers. Children, you, you understand what's going on here, right? The, the man goes to these men. He says, will you work in my field for 12 hours? If you do, I'll pay you $200. The workers say, we'll do it. They work for 12 hours in the field. He pays them exactly what they agreed to, $200. That was the deal. That was the agreement. The master didn't break his bond, didn't break his word. And then the master goes on in verse 14. And he reminds them, I, I'm free to do with my money what I want to do with my money. I'm free to hire who I want to hire. I'm free to pay my workers whatever I want to pay my workers. Notice what he says, verse 14. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? You see, here's what it comes down to. These 12-hour workers... They don't like how generous the master has been with the men who only worked an hour. They don't like his generosity. In their minds, in the minds of the 12-hour workers, the one-hour workers didn't earn their keep. They didn't earn their money. They didn't deserve to get that much money. It makes no sense to them. Jesus even says at the end of verse, in verse 16, he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. God often works in ways we don't expect, in ways we don't understand. Completely contrary to our way of thinking, we would expect there to be this pecking order. We would expect that the 12-hour the guys would get paid more. I mean, that's just how it is. 
but not in God's kingdom. God works in ways that are contrary to our thinking. Now, I love these parables that Jesus tells. They're wonderful for their simplicity. Uh, children, most of these are stories that, that you too can understand. I mean, we can, we can picture ourselves in this story, can't we? We can picture ourselves as these 12-hour workers. Again, we can picture ourselves outside a hot Central Valley day, working all day in the heat, short lunch break, maybe a couple water breaks, but we've worked hard. And then as the day kind of starts to cool off a little bit, some other people come in, they work for an hour, and they get the same amount of money as we do. We get it. We understand it. But what's this parable about? Why does Jesus, right after he talks to the rich young ruler, why does Jesus tell this parable? Because he's teaching us about grace. He's teaching us tonight two things about grace. First of all, he's teaching us that grace is shocking. It's shocking. I said to you this morning, I said at the beginning of this sermon, we are hardwired for law. We are hardwired to think we have to earn our keep. And if we're honest with ourselves, we, we will confess that there are times when it bothers us when people get something they don't deserve. We, we understand why the 12-hour guys are upset. Because those 12-hour guys are us in a very real sense. We all have a tendency, a natural tendency to think not in terms of grace, but in terms of fairness, justice. And, and think of this how it relates to salvation. Think of this how it relates to the kingdom of God. When we read the story in the Old Testament about Rahab the harlot, Aren't we maybe a bit bothered that God saved a prostitute? I mean, this is a woman who literally sold her body to men. She didn't deserve salvation. She didn't deserve to go to heaven. She hadn't done anything to earn it, and yet God saved her. And we might be a little upset that she received such generous grace. Or think about the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross lived his entire life apparently as a scoundrel. He had lived his entire life in unbelief. Because of his crimes, he was sentenced to, to be put to death on a cross. The thief on the cross was a was a bad dude. He had not lived a good life. But in the providence of God, God has it so this man just happens to be crucified next to Jesus. You ever thought about how providential that was? They, they crucified hundreds and hundreds of people in that day. And in the providence of God, the thief on the cross is placed on a cross right next to Jesus. And when this thief is first on the cross next to Jesus, Matthew's gospel tells us that the thief is reviling Jesus, mocking him, making fun of him. 
But that day, as that man hung on the cross, he came to know Jesus as his Savior. In spite of living 99% of his life in rebellion against God, at the very end, he believed in Jesus. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Does that make you shake your head a little? Does that, that make you say, you know, how can, how can someone who, who lived their entire life in rebellion against God and yet at the very end embraces Jesus, how can a guy like that have as, as full a salvation as I have? Is that fair? But grace is shocking, isn't it? What about the story of the prodigal son? Children, you all know about the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son asks for his inheritance, basically saying to his father, I wish you were dead, so please give me what you're going to give me when you do die, and I'm out of here. And he leaves, and he goes away, and, and he wastes his inheritance. He lives uh, in a very dishonorable way. And he finally comes to his senses, and, and he goes home, and his, his father, you remember the scene, the father runs out to meet his son, and, and the father says, we're going to have a big party. For my son, who was lost, has returned home. And you remember the prodigal son actually has an older brother. The older brother had spent his entire life serving dad, living apparently a very moral life. And he goes to dad and he says, you know, all these years I slaved for you. All these years I did everything you asked me to do. I worked hard. I never gave you any trouble in all those years, you never let me have a party with my friends. You never held a party for me. And yet, this son of yours, my brother, he comes back after, after squandering your money on prostitutes, and you have a big party for him. That's not fair. Brothers and sisters, it's not about fairness, is it? If it's fairness we want, it's hell we get. Because that is what is fair. Grace is shocking. God gave Rahab and the thief on the cross salvation. Free and full salvation despite everything that they had done. And it's the same for us. In Jesus, God gives us full salvation and free salvation despite everything that we have done. God owes me nothing. And yet in Christ, he has given me everything. That's a radical message, isn't it? And it's a message that the, the yeah buts don't like. Do you know what a yeah but is? A yeah but is the person who, who will hear about God's grace. They'll, they'll hear about the free salvation that God offers in Christ and they will say, yeah, but. Yeah, but if you teach that, people will just live however they want to live. If you teach the, the free gospel of Jesus Christ, people will have no incentive to live for Christ. Do we really think that little of God's power that is at work in his children? 
Do, do we really think that God's grace is, is not strong enough to change us? That what is needed is us clubbing people over the head with the law to change them and shape up? We are called to continue to preach and teach and, and rejoice in God's shocking powerful, sovereign, effectual grace in the lives of sinners. Grace shocks us, and it should shock us, because I don't deserve it. I deserve eternal damnation, and yet God has saved me. It's not about fairness. It's about grace, and so grace is shocking, Second thing this parable teaches us is that grace is sovereign. You remember what God says to Moses in Exodus 33? He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Just as the owner of this vineyard had, had every right and was free to pay whatever he wanted to pay, whomever he wanted to pay, God is free to show grace and mercy to whomever he desires. Whenever he desires. In this room tonight, there are some of you, and I'm going to guess a majority of you, who never knew a time, you've never known a time you didn't trust Jesus as your Savior. You're raised in a Christian home, never known a time you didn't know Jesus as your Savior. That's wonderful. And I think that's probably the majority of people in this room. But there are other people in this room who didn't grow up in a Christian home. There are other people in this room who, who didn't go to church when they were young. Other people in this room who, who lived in, in rebellion against God. But at a certain point in your life, God broke in. God intervened. And he saved you. A biblical example of the first group is Timothy. Timothy had the, the scriptures taught to him by his mother and grandmother from the time he was born. That's a lot of you. Your parents, your grandparents always taught you the word of God. A biblical example of the second group, of course, is Rahab, the thief on the cross. But at the end of the day, every person in this room is saved by grace alone. It's the great leveler of us all, isn't it? There's not one of us here tonight who can stand up and say, I'm better than these other people. We're all saved by grace alone. J.C. Ryle wrote this. He said, when comparing one who has always known Jesus with one who came to know Jesus later in life, J.C. Ryle says, both are equally forgiven before God. Both are equally washed in Christ's blood. Both are equally clothed in Christ's righteousness. Both are equally justified. Both accepted. Both will be found at Christ's right hand at the last day. Both are saved by grace alone. And both will owe all to Christ. Whether it's Timothy or the thief on the cross, both will be found at Christ's right hand on the last day. Both are saved by grace alone. And both have to say, 
I owe all to Jesus. All of us in this room, no matter when we came to faith in Christ, all of us are saved by grace alone. The parable is a wonderful parable because it reminds us of the shocking, sovereign grace that our master has shown to us. May we leave here tonight with joy in our hearts. May we leave here with thankfulness at the grace that we have been shown. We don't want justice. We don't want fairness. We love grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you tonight that you have not given us justice. That your justice was actually poured out on your son 2,000 years ago so that we would receive grace and mercy. Father, we thank you for your work of grace in each of our individual lives. We know that it's not a a cookie-cutter Christianity where we all come the same way at the same time. We know that many of the people in this room have never known a time they didn't know you. While there's many of us also who can look back and remember the unbelief that once held us. But Lord, at the end of the day, for all of us, it is all of grace. We give you thanks and praise. And we pray that we would go into this new week thanking you, humbled before you, praising you and and recognizing that, that we have nothing of ourselves which to bring to you. But we come as beggars. We come empty handed. We come clinging to Christ, rejoicing in what he has done for us. We thank you and we praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing together number 429, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Grace. We'll sing all three stanzas and let's stand as we sing.
564 is our doxology. We'll sing uh, stanza two. And before we sing that, we hear God's benediction. A benediction is not a prayer. A benediction is a statement. A benediction is God declaring something to his people. And so I I know that uh, a number of you will sometimes bow your head and receive the benediction. That's fine. But, But please do remember, this is not a prayer. This is God saying something to us. And what he says is is very, very significant. So receive his benediction, his blessing now. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.